I invite you to turn in your Bibles, 2 Peter, and we are on the very last verse of 2 Peter. And you might say, well, this is going to be the last sermon on 2 Peter. No, we're going to have one more. <laughs> one more to summarize not only 2 Peter, but 1st and 2 Peter, and really look at the mega themes that we have preached on over the many months that we have been in these two books. Um, but we would be doing an injury to our to the value of Peter's uh, salutation at the end here, um, if we did not take time, we looked last week at the, at the previous verse, at verse 17, um, in a warning that we are to beware lest something happen, that is that we fall from our own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. And so we looked again, and we have noticed in the past few weeks, we've seemed to go positive, negative, positive, negative, and today is more of a positive message um, as we move away from this warning. And so the warning was there, and we addressed it last week, that we have something to look out for, and that we do not walk through life thinking that somehow we are immune from the dangers that the New Testament writers frequently uh, give us, that they give us out not only to um, the new Christian, but to the established Christian, and that they held that themselves. That when we read Paul's writing, he says, I don't want to uh, miss out. I don't want to fail to finish my course. I, I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that I endure to the end. And that, that concept of endurance is something that all the New Testament writers rehearse again and again before us, and not only in the negative of beware, watch out, uh, lest these things happen to you and how to avoid it, but in a positive manner, which we're going to look at today, of how do you avoid that. And it's not by walking around on eggshells hoping you don't do something wrong. That really isn't the mechanism that is going to deliver us from the tendency of man to betray God. And do you even betray your own confession of faith? And so we don't want to fall away. We don't want to be in that condition. And certainly the New Testament writers don't want that as well. But let's back up a little bit again. Let's read all of verse 17 to come into. I recognize that I interrupted a sentence because 17 and 18, really the sentence doesn't end until the middle of verse 18. That's where we'll conclude this, well, we'll get through the end of the whole verse. We can handle one whole verse. It can be done. Verse 17 says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we go from a negative statement, a warning passage, where we see the perils that surround us in our Christian walk that would seek to dissuade us and drag us away from that. And really, doesn't even, it doesn't even have to drag us. It really entices us away from it. Uh, by our own volition, that we simply, by neglect or, or by adherence to something that sounds good, but we haven't studied it out, uh, causes us to really drift away is the how the author of Hebrews describes it, that we just drift off course and the peril that is potentially there. And so we come to now a very positive statement 
because if 17 is a warning passage, 18 begins with the verse with the word but. Um, here's an alternative. Rather than being just walking through life, worried about not drifting, uh, how can we pursue steadfastness? And that is, I want to establish that in my life. And that is going to entail certain practices, and we've already studied most of those practices. In fact, this verse is going to take us right back to 1 Peter, some other passages that we've studied previously, um, because uh, that's Peter's MO. He likes to simply keep cycling these themes before us. He doesn't really deal with one theme, then go to another theme in a very deliberate fashion, but rather he cycles through his major themes repeatedly. And so it doesn't surprise us that we have to keep going back into the rest of the book. And, and certainly the same is true here at the very end. And so we are confronted with this opportunity. I don't want to be led away into error. I don't want to fall away from my own steadfastness. I, don't, I want to heed this warning. And I'm convinced that most believers uh, want to be in that condition. They want to recognize error when it is, uh, confronts them. They want to walk in righteousness and in truth, that they really want a right relationship with God. Um, but we somehow are misguided too many times on what that entails. So today, we're going to take a look at a several words here and develop them and look at them throughout Scripture. Um, the first word here that we find is that we are to grow. Rather than being um, falling away or led away, uh, because we have some knowledge ahead of time that there are perils along the way, that there are those who will twist the scriptures, they are not ignorant of the scriptures, they are not anti the scriptures, they are in the scriptures and are warping them to their own interests and maybe even to your interests, telling you what you want to hear instead of what God wants you to hear. If we know that that is the state of affairs around us, we come to this expectation that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's first tackle this word grow. Um, we might think, well, this is an active verb, but it really isn't. Um, we expect to grow, and we hopefully understand that growth isn't something you do as something you determine to do. It is rather the result of something you do. And so when we have a seed, it doesn't decide it's going to grow whenever it wants to. It waits until it's in the right environment. And so I want to get it at the right temperature. I want to get the right moisture around it. And uh, a little sunshine doesn't hurt. And we start to see it open up. You might say, Pastor, you didn't talk about soil, because you really don't need soil to germinate a seed. Didn't you all do that when you were young? They put it in a little plastic bag and hug it in your window with a little moisture, and it sprouted, right? And so that's what the conditions are. Now, if you kept it in that little plastic bag, um, is it going to bear fruit? No. In fact, it is very fragile at that point, isn't it? And so then we recognize, well, if I really want this plant to grow, I'm going to have to put it into even better conditions. Those are adequate conditions to germinate and to sprout, but not to grow. 
And so I put it into some fertile soil. I make sure it has water and fresh air and oxygenating the roots. And I make sure that, that um, it's getting sunshine for the photosynthetic process to happen. Um, but I want you to know that the plant isn't choosing to grow. It is responding. Growth is the response to a right environment. And so we are called to grow in something. We are called to really put ourselves in a right environment for growth to occur. And the indication with using this word is, if you do that consistently, growth will happen. And we recognize that um, as we raise our children, right? If they have failure to thrive, something is missing in their lives, um, and it can be a number of things, not just nutritional things. We understand that for a child to grow, they need the building blocks. And so if they stop eating, their growth is going to be hampered. And so we recognize that part of growing is really, because they don't choose to grow, they grow whenever their body decides, whenever the, their body needs to grow. But we understand that there are certain activities that a child needs to do. They need to sleep because most of your growth happens while you're sleeping. They need to eat. We understand. They need to eat. And they need to keep breathing. I don't know if you realize that, but children need to breathe to keep growing. Um, they need to have exercise. And without that, they grow the wrong way. Um, and they need to have some balance in some other areas. But they also need um, loving attention. And sometimes that involves discipline and other times it's, it's direction. And so we recognize that children grow, but we don't sit there and we tell them, we don't command them to grow, right? Grow. Why aren't you growing? No, that would be foolishness. This is a result of righteousness. Spiritual growth, to grow in grace, we're going to talk about grace here in a minute, what that entails, requires something of us, but it is not... I'm going to sit here and think about how to grow. We have this song we talked about last week, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Well, those are two activities that we train children in with that song that will be beneficial to their spiritual growth. That if you neglect your Bible and forget to pray, you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. Uh, spiritually, and really that's, you'll die, is what you'll do. You'll fade. You will fall away. You will be led astray. All of those things you become susceptible to. And so growth is not something we do. Growth is something that happens when we do what is right. When we participate in certain activities that God lays out, growth is the natural result. Sometimes that result is, is a little bit beyond our control. And so um, maturity. Maturity is something that we grow into and it just takes seconds and then minutes and then hours and then days and weeks, months, years, decades, and we grow into maturity. It takes time. But I've seen some pretty old people that act pretty immature. So there is another quantifying agent involved there that we need to be considerate of. And so when you see the information, the instruction here that you are to grow, there is behind that not just one activity, but 
a great amount of activity. And we have studied those, and I'm not going to rehearse them again for you. Um, we're going to be talking about two or three of them today, but we understand there's an activity that God's Word calls me to that's called obedience, and we could very easily just go across the page and start reading in 1 John, where 1 John starts listing off these things and said, here's how you know that you're a believer if you do these things. If you love God's Word, love the brethren, you know, obey uh, his word. And so we recognize that there is a whole list of activities I should be involved in to make sure that my growth is sustained. When a Christian becomes stagnated in their spiritual development, um, it falls in some category here is missing or is lacking or is being neglected. We're going to be referencing a couple of those. Uh, especially when we get to the, to the second thing of growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, and we tend to focus there, and we miss growing in grace. And we're going to be talking more about grace than knowledge today. And so when we see the command, instead of being led away, instead of falling away, make sure that you're growing, which tells us we have to address a whole list of things behind what makes people grow and that ultimately is obedience to God's word and investment of ourselves in those things. But Peter wants to be more specific. So growth is, understands that there's underlying activity to cause growth. Sometimes that's putting yourself in the right environment and changing environments as you grow, as you recognize that one environment is not aiding in your growth. And that can be just as important as making sure you're in the right environment as make sure you're not in the wrong one. But as we grow in grace, what does that mean? What does it mean to grow in grace? And how can I facilitate growing in grace? So I can't just say I'm going to grow in grace. You just said there has to, the growth is the outcome of an activity, not an activity itself. And so I'm going to facilitate my growing in grace by participating in some other things. Well, let's talk a little bit about grace. Grace is a word we're very familiar with, and yet that familiarity does not lend itself towards helping us understand what it means to grow in grace. And this isn't anything new. The problem was there, we find in Romans, where Paul says, listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so he predicted the outcome is that Christians were like, well, if I want more of God's grace, I just need to sin some more. If God's grace matches my sinfulness, then if I sin more, I get more of God's grace. And, of course, Paul's response was, God forbid. Right? And so, already Paul knew that there would be an accusation stating, or a thought in occurring to man to take this term of growing in the grace of God and perverting it to allow for his own sinfulness. What does that sound like? I think that sounds like what Peter said in verse 16, they twist to your own destruction. You twist the scriptures to your own destruction. And now instead of walking in righteousness and truth, you're walking in sin, thinking that somehow you're growing in grace by doing it. And Paul says, God forbid. That is not what we mean. And so we already know 
that there is at least one way to mistake this instruction that we are to grow in grace. Well, grace, we, often, we know, is the unmerited favor of God. That is, that it is what God grants to us that we do not deserve. And in the very definition of the term grace, of his favor, we have some of the rudimentary understanding of what it requires us to grow in grace. But Peter's already told us this. Go with me back to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and I could even go back into chapter 3, I could go to a lot of different places. I'm going to confine myself. I might, yeah, we are going to talk about chapter 3 as well. Chapter 5, where we'll start. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, not just young people, but all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This isn't a new concept in Peter at all, is it? You want to grow in grace. Well, how do we receive grace? It is not a, how do I pursue getting stuff that I don't deserve? What a bizarre statement. Well, obviously, you can't do anything, really, because as soon as you do it now, it's of works and not of grace. And so it's not by, my I'm going to put God over a barrel, now he has to bless me with his grace because I did this, because then grace stops being grace. Now it's something that you are awarded or rewarded for your actions. And so what is required for us to grow in grace according to this, and I'm really, really only going to focus in on two elements today from God's Word because they are put together in God's Word very frequently. And here we find that what hinders your growth in grace is your pride. What enables us to grow in grace is humility. The very nature of being recipients of grace is humbling. If we truly understand what grace is, that I am not deserving, there's nothing inherently in me that uh, demands that God has to bless me, there's nothing I can do to earn this, and that is extraordinarily humbling. If we really understand, I want to grow in grace, means that I have to recognize I don't deserve any of God's favor. And that necessitates humility. And so Peter here in, in 1 Peter 5, in the context of talking about the leadership of the church and those that respond to that leadership, the young people of the church, um, says, listen, the theme here is that we ought to be submissive to one another, clothing ourselves with humility. Now God's word commands us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And that if we do not humble ourselves, then God will put it upon himself to humble you. Now, I don't know about you, but from my understanding of Scripture, I prefer the first over the second, given the examples that it presents. I much prefer that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was one example of a man who did not humble himself, right? Our young people learned a little bit about that in, in their devotions and were life Wednesday night. Um, and God says, okay, you think that this kingdom is yours by your own power and strength? You're going to behave like an ox, a cow, 
a sheep, whatever, an animal of the field, and you're going to eat grass for the next few years until you realize that you don't run anything without my grace. And so he humbled himself. And he finally did. And then we find this wonderful passage in Daniel that gives his glory to God for humbling him. Uh, And so God can humble you. Uh, But it's going to be a hard road. And maybe that's the road that needs to be taken. But for Peter and other New Testament writers, they prefer the other road. And the other road is that we humble ourselves that we submit one to another, and we're going to talk about what humility is and isn't, uh, because people, again, twist this word and the concept of humility. And so we come to this and we recognize, well, if I want to grow in God's grace, I have to subordinate myself, I have to humble myself, because God doesn't just ignore the proud, he resists the proud, That means God is moving against you growing, not benefiting you growing in his grace. He is withholding grace from you. And it's because of our pride. Ultimately, pride we recognize um, as that which keeps us from God, keeps men from surrendering to God, Ultimately, the act of salvation is an act of surrendering our will to his will, surrendering our ways to his ways, of recognizing our inability to address our sin problem and our complete, absolute reliance on his provision of salvation. How do I develop, how do I humble myself? Well, let's first find the evidences of when humility is lacking. God God describes in Timothy that one of the evidence of the last things will be men will be lovers of themselves, boastful and proud. And the indication of that within the church is given later on in that text, and that is that men will be unteachable. They will not endure sound doctrine. They just won't put up with it. It's offensive to them because it demands something of them. And in Timothy, again, Paul says uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Okay, so it's there. It's a gift of God for your benefit. It is profitable for doctrine. That's instruction, teaching. But then we don't like the rest of it. Doctrine, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Do you want to know one of the strongest evidences of a lack of humility in someone? How do they respond when somebody rebukes them? Corrects them. Instructs them in righteousness. How do they respond? Because if we respond to biblical correction and rebuke and instruction with, huh, I'm going to go somewhere where they don't make me feel bad, you have just demonstrated a lack of humility. You won't surrender yourself to God's word. Because that's what God's word is profitable for, is rebuke, correction, instruction, righteousness, as well as doctrine. And so when we encounter 
unteachable people, people that don't think that anyone can teach them anything or, or that they are the end of it all. We encounter a tendency towards pride that betrays their opportunity to grow in grace. And so the question of humility is a question of teachability, of being able to be rebuked, corrected, instructed in righteousness um, from God's word. I'm not talking about um, just someone that's hypercritical, but I'm talking about genuine, loving rebuke using God's word regarding uh, our sin, and sometimes that sin even masquerades as religious activity. How do you respond? Are you offended? Stomp off. Don't want to hear it. Humph. Who do you think you are? You attack the rebuker. Um, whatever. Right? You make excuses. You rationalize. All of those are evidences that you lack humility to receive instruction. Let me share with you who your group is. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus Christ approaches the Pharisees and the Sadducees with a series of questions. And while his disciples are listening, he instructs them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of, all, kingdom of God, you need to be, learn to be the servant of all. And then he turns to the religious leaders and says, oh, you vipers. And he goes right through it. And he rebukes their religious activity. You keep the letter of the law and yet you break the very spirit of the law. How did they respond to that rebuke? Did they humble themselves? Did they weep over their, their facade of religious activity that, that was covering up a dead, uh, spiritual death inside of them? Did they see the hypocrisy of putting these great loads on their people that they themselves wouldn't keep? Did they respond at all like that? No. Why? Because they lacked the humility to bend the knee to God, and therefore, in their pride, they were offended. And the result was, we want to kill you. I can't tell you that how many times in the course of a few decades in the ministry, um, people have responded that way. Now you might say, they wanted to kill you, Pastor? Well, by their speech, they certainly didn't have any good thoughts towards me. They certainly didn't want me to thrive based upon what they said. They wanted to do injury because they thought that I was attacking them in their pride. They couldn't see their own error. And so how do we respond to people who attack us? We attack them. Of course we do. Never mind that they have no, no other interest than our welfare. And we see it in our children. What happens when we spank them when they do wrong? I hate you! They want to hurt you. And they know that those words hurt. Don't they? That's why they use them. And they're demonstrating a pride that is unwilling to recognize their error and a submission to their authority. And that phrase is their rebellion. It is their pride expressing itself, that they are not acknowledging that they deserve that rebuke, they deserve that correction, or they deserve that instruction in righteousness. 
And so we have that evidence that's there that the Bible tells us to look for and that's going to be multiplied in the last days. And so rather than being responsive to rebuke and to recognize that 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 is a benefit to them that when God rebukes us uh, through his word, we respond by excusing ourselves or attacking those who are using God's word appropriately to address issues of our life. In that condition, you cannot grow in grace. Because God is against you. God resists the proud. He grants grace to the humble. And the humble are necessarily teachable. They are necessarily rebukable. They are necessarily correctable. Not because they are self-denigrated. And a lot of people think that's humility. Humility is putting yourself down. And wrong. Self-degradation is not humility. That's false humility. That is actually another form of pride. Because you're waiting for someone to correct you, aren't you? No, tell me I'm beautiful when I say I'm ugly. Tell me I'm talented when I say I can't do anything. Tell me that. No, it's just another form of trying to stroke our own egos. It's false humility. Philippians chapter 2 tells us what true humility is. True humility is what? Esteeming others better than myself. So in my value system, I look at each of you and I say, you are more value. If I value you more than myself, I'm going to put your needs ahead of my own needs. I'm going to put your interests ahead of my own interests. I am going to sacrifice myself on your behalf if I esteem you better than myself. And further, I am going to give you permission whether I do it formally or just generally to rebuke, that you can take God's word and correct me where I'm wrong. That's humility. When Moses described himself as the most humble man, he let everyone correct him. Did you ever notice that? He was one of the most advice taker people in the Bible. Sometimes... That wasn't a good thing. (laughs) Sometimes it was a good thing. At one point, God almost kills him. You ever wonder about that? God almost killed Moses. Between the burning bush and arriving in Egypt, God's getting ready to kill Moses for not obeying him. You know why he wasn't obeying him? Because his wife, he was listening to his wife. He submitted to his wife because his wife didn't want to circumcise their son. Apparently that point needed to be emphatic. (laughs) Yeah, Moses listened to his wife instead of God. God says, circumcise your sons, and wife didn't want to do it, and she was, so God says, oh, fine. And by the way, God wasn't getting ready to kill the wife. He's getting ready to kill Moses. That's how humble he was, and he wasn't going to violate his wife's sensitivities. And so finally she realizes, hey, if I want to keep this husband around, I better 
do this, and she does it. And then she attacks her husband by saying, there, you bloody husband. The act is done. Moses takes the advice of his father-in-law, which was good advice. He takes the advice, and he's basically a son of I mean, the guy took advice, and there was one time that he wasn't humble. And you learned about that in Sunday school this morning for the adults. And that was, he hit the rock twice. In his anger, he elevated himself above his people and above his God, and he did a proud deed. And God says, for that, you're not going into the promised land. You see, God resists the proud, and by pride, we're talking about one occasion. One occasion of pride in a man described as the most humble man on the earth. God resisted it. And then I look at my own life and I say, oh my goodness, why should God ever cause me to grow in grace when I look at instances of my own pride, of doing it my way instead of God's way? That we resist obeying God's word and then we wonder why we aren't getting his favor. Why isn't God favoring us? Why isn't he benefiting us? Why aren't we growing in grace? And it's not God's fault. God gives us the principles here. And the principle is, you want God to grow in God's grace? You're going to have to humble yourselves. Which means you're going to be submissive to one another. You're going to submit yourself to your elders. You're going to be clothed in humility. Verse 6 says in chapter 5, First Peter, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And this brings us to the second element of growing in grace, <laughs> which don't seem to be correlated very often in our society when we talk about humility and we talk about this other activity of the Christian life. We don't often understand their relationship with one another. And that is our prayers. Normally, when we're teaching prayer, we're talking about access and that you can come boldly before the throne of grace um, with your requests. And certainly the Bible talks about that, that we come boldly before the throne of grace, um, crying out, Abba, Father, based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, that it is his provision, him as the mediator, and the Spirit is our interpreter, by which we have access to the Father, whereby we cry out to him. But we don't come to him, and I hear people, oh, we're going to talk to the big daddy in the sky, or we're going to, you know, they want to use these familial terms to address God. As though somehow we're his peer. Or that he owes us this somehow. Well, once it is owed to you, it is no longer grace that you're asking or engaging in, is it? Now, it isn't his favor you're seeking. It is, it is your payment that you think you are owed And this is the attitude by too many. And it's reflected in some of their words. And here we have this connection between our prayer life and our submission life. Are we not seeing answered prayers because of our own pride? And again, Peter and other ones, other 
New Testament authors going to this at length. Uh, James says, you pray, you don't get what you pray for. Why? Because you pray for yourself. You pray wrongly. And so, of course, you're not going to get You pray in a condition of unrighteousness. And the Bible says that it's the, right, the prayers of the righteous man that avail much. And so we pray in this arrogance that somehow we can come into the presence of God and demand certain things and expect certain things um, when rather we should be coming asking him for his grace, which implies that I'm asking him for things I don't deserve at all. And I know it. You see, we have an American concept of approaching leadership, an American concept that somehow leadership are our servants because that's the democratic way, and we apply that to our spiritual walk and we think that somehow God is there to serve us simply because he has served us. That that is his purpose. And we forget that he has served us that we might serve him. He has certainly initiated that relationship, but a proper response to God is to recognize, why don't deserve any of what he has done for me, and I deserve nothing of what he will do for me. I cannot, and so I come before him with abject humility. And the reason this is the posture for praying is because this is the posture of humility. We are in our bodies, bowing our knee, bowing our hearts, bending our knee to illustrate what it should be going on in our hearts, and that is that we have humbled ourselves before our holy, holy God and are asking for something we don't deserve. And in fact, we deserve quite the opposite. This isn't just because knee pain in, in, you know, in causes better praying. It was a stat. The reason we bow our heads, even just that act, when I line up these young people on Word of Life night, all right, we're going to bow our heads and pray. You know, most of them don't. They're doing this because it's not important to them. But why do we take that posture as a recognition that we are coming before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with a request we have no right to make except that Jesus is our mediator. And on that basis alone, I get to pray. Not because of anything I've done. And any righteousness I do do um, is is, (laughs) no repayment for what he has done for me. It is the duty, it is the minimum duty of a servant of God. And so this connection, we want to grow in grace. Well, then I ask, do you want to be clothed with humility? That humility is, surrounds you always. That you don't go out of the house without it. <laughs> that you are embarrassed and ashamed with, with it without humility. We ought to be clothed with humility. That he may exalt us certainly is the future, but that we have this access to him by casting all our care upon him, for he cares for you. And this is, again, Peter already addresses back up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, he's quoting out of the, out of the Old Testament, uh, verse 10, 11, and 12. For he who would love 
life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who, is, who does God attend to the prayers? Well, it's the righteous. And Peter later defines that as, well, what is righteousness? It is submission. My act of obeying God's word is an act of submission to God's word. Just as much as your children's actions of obeying their elders is submission to those elders. Just as much as my act of submitting to one another is a recognition that we have this authority to take God's word and rebuke one another, to correct one another, to instruct one another. And we can hate the people that do that, but that only exposes our own pride and that we are in a condition that we'll never grow in God's grace. This is repeated for us with the same passage in James. In James chapter 4, if you would like to turn there, this is the passage I already referenced a little bit. Oh, let's read a big chunk of this. Let's start at verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The act of obedience to God's word is an act of humility. It is saying, God knows better than I know. God's <laughs> regulations, if you will, God's instructions trump everyone else's instructions. I don't care what my society says. If God's word says I should be doing this, I will do this. I don't care if... Uh, if I can line up 20 teachers that affirm that. I don't need that. I need God's word. When I humble myself to God's word, and I say I'm going to be obedient to this statement, to this instruction, and I'm not going to rationalize it away, I'm not going to twist the scriptures to say what it doesn't say or to not say what it does say, uh, I'm going to be obedient. That requires a level of humility. I'm not going to do it the way my lawyer tells me, my doctor tells me, my dentist, I had a dentist this week, um, I, I'm not, they're not going to be the embodiment of truth and of wisdom. I come to God's word and I say, this is the embodiment of truth and wisdom. This is where I will derive those things. This is where I derive uh, true knowledge. This is where I will derive um, discernment. 
and let all men be liars in comparison. And so I don't go to the scientists because most of them are unethical. Somebody sent me a meme this week and it says, if you think politicians are the only ones that can be bought, you don't, think, you don't believe how easy it is to buy scientists. And so we come to God's word and we, true submission, true humility says, I'm going to submit to God and that means I'm going to obey his word. It has the authority of my life that I will live by. And this affects our praying. James, like Peter, was concerned about our praying. And you cannot come before God with arrogance, with self-interest. You come before him asking for his favor. You are asking for something you don't deserve, and you should come meekly. You should come humbly. You should come uh, ready to give him praise and thanks, whether he fulfills your request or not, because um, he's already graced you beyond measure by saving your miserable soul from its deserved state. And so we are to grow in grace. Well, what's the environment to grow in grace? Humility and prayer. And so we have the instruction, pray without ceasing, and that is that, is that relational with God, that I am in communication with God, that's all prayer is, communication with God, on a continual basis. That it's not... Well, there are certain times that are good for praying and other times. If you're in a place that you feel uncomfortable praying, you have a problem. Either you're in a bad place or you are not right with God. So you're in a bad place. You're in a bad location or you're in, in a bad condition. So if I, I went to a public school, so I know this deal, so I would go and, and I've been trained all my life to pray before you eat because I guess you choke and die if you don't. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can pray after you eat too. You'd be more thankful then. But um, You go to public school, you sit down, you can't believe how many times just bowing your head and praying before you eat got me trouble. Just that act. Was that just good training or are we committed? And can I be humiliated for praying? I was humiliated almost every day at school for doing things like that. Can we endure humiliation? Well, if we understand the nature of prayer and the nature of salvation, we understand I've already humbled myself. And so the humiliation of men is of no regard to me. And that's why when we see these characters in the scripture being humiliated, and remember, the ultimate picture of this is Jesus Christ. We try to sanitize the events of the cross, but that was a humiliating event. How could he endure it? Because he had already humbled himself farther than men could ever humiliate him. Register that a little bit. 
Men can't humiliate you if you've already humbled yourself below any level that they could humiliate you. And so they stripped him naked, they beat him, they put the crown on his arm, they spat upon him, they did all these things. You might say, oh, I can't even look at those things. How can they do that to my Lord, to my Savior? I can do that to a man. How can they do that to any living creature? I wouldn't do that to my dog. I know some of you think I would, but no, I won't. But Christ Jesus had already humbled himself and became a servant for us. And Philippians 2 says that that's our example. And if he's already humbled himself, you can't humiliate him any further. He can endure that because he's already put himself so low. And if we will humble ourselves, then we will endure any humiliation of the world so that we can pursue God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And part of that pursuit of God to grow in grace is to have an active, viable prayer life that is not based upon my overconfidence, it's based upon the fact that I'm coming to God as a petitioner that doesn't deserve a thing from him because I've already gotten more than I could ever ask for. Because I have eternity in his presence as my future. And so our prayers necessitate humility. That we are asking for a favor. Something I don't deserve, that I cannot pay for, that I can never repay. And that demands us to come before him in that attitude. And so, grow in grace. But that's only half of it, but my time is up. The other part is to grow in the knowledge of him. And they are not unconnected, are they? Because I already told you, if you can't Humble yourself, you can never be taught. Most precious lessons are not taught by the most intellectual and best preacher. Sometimes they're taught by somebody that you might look down upon, except that you've humbled yourself and you esteem others better than yourselves and say, I can learn from them. I can learn from them. When I often invited overseas, they treat you spectacularly to be a speaker, and they, especially in India, they give you these garland things, and I mean, it's just ridiculous, um, and it's, uh, and you're there to, to teach and to minister, um, and too many Americans let that go to their head, and don't let the native pastors teach them. And I determined when we went there, I said, I'm not going to have that attitude. I'm not going to, we have an American attitude that if you have the money, you must always be right. And that's why we listen to people like Bill Gates for some stupid reason, because we think if you're rich, you must be right, because we've been watching the filler on the roof too many times. Um, And so we, we have this attitude, and Americans carry it with them everywhere they go. Because we have resources that somehow we are the smartest people on earth and that we are the teachers of the rest of the world. Um, And in fact, uh, the Bible has a very different view. But if we go and we humble ourselves, we esteem them as better than ourselves, I go, well, you know, the gospel's been here since William Carey, and that was hundreds of years ago, 150 years ago, yeah, something like that. And, And so... They have a rich tradition of Christianity there uh, that's maybe different from ours, but it's still very rich. And they have a copy of God's Word, and they know how to read, and they're pretty studious people, and what can I learn from them? 
and I've always tried to come back from those trips transformed by their ministry to me because, frankly, they outminister me. They're my superiors. I minister to one church. Congratulations. I get paid a ridiculous amount of money to minister to one church. I go and meet a Pastor Philip, and he's running around Saturday night, Sunday. He's on his motorcycle. He's got three, four congregations he's ministering to. And I go to one or two of those meetings, and I'm overwhelmed. He's like, we got this gal's demon-possessed. We got to take care of this. And I'm like, I'm not equipped for that. Because we, 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 have, we have mental hospitals for that. Right? No, we got to cast out this demon. Well, how do you do that? That's beyond my experience. And then I go, and I'm just watching these men minister, and I see things, and I can be critical and say, oh, they don't have this theological I dotted or this T crossed, but I don't go there with that attitude because these men outminister me. I have to learn from them. And when they rebuke or correct using God's word, I have to respond just like you. Or I have a pride issue. Oh, they can't teach me anything. As soon as you have that attitude towards anyone in the church, you have a pride issue. I don't want to have that. I want to have a teachable spirit, but you better have, be well equipped with God's word if you're going to do it, because I'm not here to worry about what's your value system. I'm worried about what God's value system is. So we need to increase, grow in our knowledge of our Lord. Again, we have a lot of studying going on, but that's not the extent of this word. The extent of this word is that I'm going to put myself in an environment that I can come closer and closer to God. I can increase in my knowledge about God, but also increase in my knowledge. And the Greek has two different words for knowledge. One is more factual. One is relational. And we have it in Spanish too, right? So you can... Um, either know or you can know. There's two different words. One's for if you know a person and one's if you know information. Um, and so, um, and that's conocer and saber, right? You see, I do know these things. I'm not very good at them, but I know them. Okay? And so you have saber and conocer. Well, the Greek have the same kind of thing. English is a sloppy, messy, ugly language. We just have no. Do you know him? Well, I know of him. I know something about him, but do I know him? We want to know Christ. We want to grow not only in our knowledge about him, but we also want to know more of him. We want to be known by him. We want to know him as our personal Lord and Savior. That is an intimacy. Not just doctrine and information. That's necessary. I don't deny that, but it is not sufficient. We want to have personal knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We want to have intimacy with Him, and we need to grow in that. And can you grow in intimacy? Absolutely. I am far more intimate with my wife now than when we were first married. Maybe not on a passion level you think of because I'm old, you know, but 
I'm far more intimate. We can finish each other's sentences, and sometimes she does when she shouldn't, but um, <laughs> that's really annoying. They do that. Um, we don't have to have as lengthy conversations about many things because we already have made those conversations and we have increased in intimacy and now we can engage on a different level of discussion and of sharing. And so intimacy should grow in a marriage. If a marriage stagnates in intimacy, you have a problem, usually in the communication realm, but also in the spiritual realm. There's usually sin involved somewhere in there. Same is true with your relationship with God. Are you growing in your knowledge of Christ? Not just knowledge about him, that's important for our children, but knowledge of him and with him. This is necessary. Again, put ourselves in the environment to be around those who love the Lord that you love, that you might grow in your intimacy with your Savior. And this should be our desire. And I would contend with you that if you will engage yourself in, in the necessary activities to grow in grace and the necessary activities to grow in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you will insulate yourself, you will protect yourself from being led away, that's knowledge, intimacy, and from falling away, and that is pride. And so guard yourself by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll finish this next week. Great challenge by Peter, a really good summary of what we've seen in a lot of First and Second Peter, but also throughout the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for humbling yourself to come and dwell among us that you might deliver us from our sin. We certainly don't deserve that at all. And never could. And so, Lord, we rejoice and cannot cease to give praise to your name for all that you have done for us. And yet you've called us to not only receive salvation from your hand, to be, but to be, allow us to cast our cares on you. That you care for us on a daily basis. That you know of our hurts. You know of our needs. You know of the broken nature and the misery that we endure here, for you endured it. And Lord, we marvel that you care for us. When we have demonstrated by our disobedience our lack of love for you, forgive us, Lord. We come before you acknowledging all that you have already done for us, and we rejoice in it. And yet you have invited us to ask even more. To ask, not for ourselves, but for your kingdom's sake, for our brethren, for one another. Not just for our comforts and pleasures. Lord, we pray that you might enable us to minister. 
your gospel to the lost around us, your word to one another, and that we might be ready recipients of their ministry to us, even if it requires rebuking, correcting. Lord, we thank you as that is a gift from your hand, as your grace, that we might walk better this week in your word than last. Lord, we are dumbstruck that we have a copy of your scriptures in our language sitting here before us, whereby we can not only know about you, but that we, by obedience to that and submission to its truth, know you as our friend, our father, our brother. We cannot cease to give thanks to you. In Christ Jesus' name.